The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live. And check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion, hosted by Michael Guyad. My name is Michael Gaia, publisher of the Lead Lag Report. Joining me for the hour is Ahan Manan, who uh, has the fantastic name for a company of Prometheus Research. So, uh, Ahan, I know a lot of people have been interested in your work here, but introduce yourself to the audience. Who are you? How did you get involved and interested in markets? And what are you doing with some of your research? Yeah, sure, Michael. Um, I just want to say at the top, uh, thanks for having me on. And the effort that goes into doing these um, spaces is much appreciated. I, I do frequent them myself, and I quite enjoy them. So thanks for doing that service for people. So my name is Ahan Menon, and uh, I'm the founder and CEO of Prometheus Research. Prometheus is a systematic macro research firm dedicated to the democratization of financial research. The name Prometheus has its roots in uh, Greek mythology, where Prometheus was the titan god of fire, who stole fire from the gods and gave it to man. And the reason for the name of choice was because we want to bring institutional quality macro research and tools to everyday investors and sort of level the playing field there. What's really unique about what we do at Prometheus is we spend our time trying to understand what's going on with the economy and markets, both in current context and over history. But then, rare relative to what generally happens in macro, we try to codify that understanding into a systematic rules-based process to create dynamic portfolios. The objective is to create durable portfolios that can survive and potentially thrive in all environments. Alongside these uh, systematic portfolios, we also have a host of written research ranging from topical, you know, one-pagers to in-depth 30, 40-page research reports on the macroeconomy. The overarching goal is to provide a holistic suite of products that can help investors of all sizes navigate ma- macroeconomic cycles. And as far as um, your own experience and background, are, are you, did you sort of grow up in the industry? Were you in certain companies that got you to the mindset that you're at? Talk about sort of your own evolution. Yeah, sure. So um, I, like many people, I started investing at a younger age. So, you know, your investing career ends up being longer than your professional career. I think that um, to touch on myself uh, in terms of my career experience, uh, I have a background from both the institutional buy side and retail sell side. I started my career at a macro fund called Light Sky Macro. Uh, I was on the macro and econ team where we would look at you know various different macro plays in across asset classes 
And um, I then continued that research career in a different setting after leaving LightSky at a firm called FXDD, which is a retail brokerage. Between the two, I kind of got a good sense of the lay of the land, both in terms of institutional quality, high grade, you know, trying to be the most cutting edge in terms of generating alpha. And at the same time, I got an understanding of the retail space and kind of the needs of the people out there. In 2022, kind of the stars aligned and uh, it was time to start Prometheus. It was, and it was pretty much an ideal year to do so. 2022 was a tough year for a lot of uh, people, but in macro in general, I think it was a pretty good year in the sense that macro seems to be back. And yeah, that brings us to our conversation today. So you said something which alludes a little bit to something I tweeted out yesterday, which is that a lot of people will say things on Twitter and tweet out research, but the reality is most of the stuff that you see on Fintoid, I'd argue, is either coincident, lagging, or random, right? That it doesn't really have any predictive power. So you do have to be able to codify, backtest, and see if a particular macro data point is actionable, to your point. How do you go about identifying what matters and what doesn't? Because I think this is the real dilemma. People get stuck in narratives that sound like they should tell you something about tomorrow, but in reality don't. Right. I I think this is quite a lengthy subject, right? I I think that when it comes to macro, I think the first thing that you have to recognize is that you're going to find a lot of anecdotal things that work, but they work only in the sense that, you know, you intuitively think you see a relationship and maybe over the last few weeks, maybe a few months, maybe even a couple of years, it looks like something will work, but when you actually go out and test it over, say, you know, 50, 60, 100 years of data, if you can, or you test it across many countries, if you have the, you know, similar data sets across different countries, you will find that more often than not, things aren't that easy. And so I think that a big challenge that I think there are really two challenges when it comes to this. The first is that When it comes to macro, you need to be able to create and use enough data to be able to have the law of large numbers on your side. The second component of it is that you don't want to be using Sunspot activity to trade, you know, U.S. equities. You need some, you need a level of rigor and you need a level of intellectual honesty in what it is that you're looking to create signals. And that can often be messed up by having extremely good computational insight, but not necessarily have a good intuitive understanding of fundamental dynamics. And so I think balancing those two things is really what you need to find a durable and reliable signal in macro. If you can do that, if you can replicate that process, what you'll find over time is that most edges right, are very small. Those edges by themselves are nothing very impressive, right? So you're talking about something that's maybe, you know, right, 52% of your entire sample. That doesn't sound like much, and it really isn't, but it's more likely to be reliable than something that has a 75% batting average. And so what your job really becomes is to collect divergent set of these edges that don't necessarily have any outstanding value in themselves, but together are adequately diverse that they protect each other and additive to each other. And that's kind of, you know, how I think about this, that the problem that you're outlining. Yeah. And and it's quite nuanced, I think. So there's a number of things that 
you said that kind of hit close to home for me. So the idea of testing a signal, as you alluded to across multiple countries, is something that is underappreciated. So I've made this point before that if you tried to do a momentum trigger, very simple on the S&P over the last decade, you have pretty good returns. You most likely didn't beat buy and hold because oftentimes moving averages tell you more about volatility as opposed to trend. We can discuss that. But if you were to do the same momentum or moving average type signal on emerging markets, as an example, you got whipsawed to death, right? Because the the cycle didn't favor the opportunity set with which you're expressing your signal on. How do you figure out how to marry the two? Sort of the idea of you identify a signal or something that has an edge, but figuring out exactly where the cycle favors the signal being whipsawed less. Because if you're going to be tactical, you still need to have a tailwind for any kind of signal to work over time. I, I think that first you have to start by recognizing that you're not going to pick the right side, the right cycle. Right? You're just not going to do that. I think that what you need to realize is there is potential that your signals are not going to work. As a result, you have to prod your own thinking and challenge yourself to find signals that are adequately different from the signals you're currently using. Now, to use a generic sort of example, right? You know, if we're talking about momentum um, and we're looking at momentum in, you know, a few countries, what you have to realize is that, you know, global momentum can more often than not be correlated to each other. So momentum in one country can be related to momentum in another country. And, you know, I'm talking about time series momentum here relative to cross-sectional momentum, and that's a separate discussion. And, but, and by the way, that, that's rooted in the economic idea of law of one price, one price, right? Similar assets should be priced similarly. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, you also have the macro, overarching macro forces of, you know, global economic growth is typically very strongly correlated. And, you know, so if you have U.S. growth happening, you probably have European growth happening, just like you have, you know, tightening cycles, they happen at the same time. What you'll have is you'll have momentum signals, which, you know, all fire roughly around the same time. And you will get diversification benefits, don't get me wrong. But the thing is that what you have to realize is that that momentum is a bet on one relationship. It's a bet on one set of ideas that defines what you think is going to be your T plus one expected return. And that is good. But what you need to find next to insulate yourself from the chance that I think that I have a durable edge, but I don't know whether it's going to be a good edge over the next two months. What you probably have to find is something that complements that edge in a meaningful way. So, you know, say you do the same strategy, but you so, so you use the same basket, but you use something like global value or you use global mean reversion or some other type of strategy that is basically orthogonal, right? And I think that what another, an alternative way of thinking about this other than the classic, oh yeah, you just want to have really diverse things is that what all of these signals are really trying to do is you're trying to, triangulate a picture of reality and there is no one set definition so if you if you think about signals generated on in a value portfolio and a momentum portfolio on the same asset they're just offering you two different ways of looking at the world and when those two ways align in terms of what their outlook is for the asset price you have a stronger signal and you know, at a portfolio level, you'll actually net 
net out to being net positive on that on that portfolio. And that's, you know, I think the hidden benefit of a diversity of approaches. We'll be back after a quick break. Hello, listeners. Michael Gayad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now, back to our discussion. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you 100%. And I always go back to if you're going to be tactical or active, the equivalent of trying to diversify inducing credit risk is trying to diversify away false signals, right? Which is, you know, you, you have a signal that tells you to take a particular action and the action doesn't take place. Over a multiple roll of the die, it might, over a long enough time series, as you alluded to, but in the small sample, which is what most people get sucked into, it doesn't. So what's the best thing you can do is you try to follow multiple signals across divergent strategies, different anomalies, and you hope that that'll kind of smooth out the false positives when they occur. To that end, let's talk about your macro view, because macro, I would argue, is ultimately what makes the likelihood of false signals higher or lower in whatever asset class you're trying to trade around. Um, Where are we in the macro environment currently? How do you think about what happened last year and how it translates to this year? Just give us some some broad thoughts. You know, I I think maybe if we can, uh, Michael, if we can couch this kind of in in framework before we get into current context, that'd be good. So I I think broadly, like what we have to recognize when we're thinking through macro is that macro is what we're trying to do is we're trying to manage the cycles, right? So at Prometheus, when we think about the economy, we think that the economy is made up of these two moving parts, right? There's the real economy, which is just, you know, factors of production, which is labor and, you know, capital. And the financial economy, which is all the things that you and I buy and sell, which also includes cash. So, you know, cash, assets, borrowing, debt. And, you know, the financial economy sits on top of the real economy. And the financial economy can grow and contract at a pace that is way faster than the real economy can because they're just a bunch of contractual agreements between participants, right? Now, while these two things are linked, they can really, you know, get out of whack from time to time. And so because this you know, financial economy can expand very fast, you have periods of time where you have the financial system really kind of outpaced real activity. And sometimes it's a pulling forward of future demand and things like that. But in general, when these conditions get too, you know, far away from each other, I think you tend to have these snapback effects. And that's really what the business cycle is. And so, you know, as macroeconomic investors, what we're trying to do is we're trying to manage this snapback effect risk, right, both on the upside and downside. In an ideal world, you would not be there for the downside or you would short the downside and you would be long the upside. That's kind of the broad framework in which we think about things and where we think. And so let's bring that to the current context, right? So if we can wind back actually a little bit more than uh, just last year, I think that what happened during COVID-19 was extremely anomalous, right? In that we had production, right? Production and output essentially just disappear overnight, right? 
And I think that, you know, in, in, in math speak, basically you have, you know, the, you have levels, you have changes and you have impulses. The level just completely disappeared, which is very unusual in economic activity. As a result, you had both income and spending disappear overnight. Now, in reaction to this, what the government did was they created a bunch of income and injected it into the private sector, right? Which for a minute was saved, but then ended up in profit, corporate profitability. And as a result, you know, companies, as they began to increase their output, they began to rehire people and spend this new profitability into the economy. And so you had this massive, you know, surge in income, right? Without a commensurate in, increase in output. Right. And I think it's very important to recognize that that imbalance isn't normally how it works because you usually have income and spending move hand in hand as output increases. And so this imbalance created one of the largest, you know, bounce back, snap back kind of effects. As we moved closer to 22, we saw this nominal activity. So all of the spending just results in nominal activity. We saw this nominal activity just extremely explosively strong, but begin to cool off a little bit as the impulse from, you know, monetary and fiscal stimulus began to slow down. Now, the issue was that we had an exacerbating event in the in the form of Russia-Ukraine conflict, which further pressured global supply, right? And the combination of these things create an environment where demand forces likely could be more persistent than the ability for output to meet these demand forces. And so you have an inflation problem, right? And the Fed in this environment embarks on one of the sharpest and tightest monetary tightenings ever, right? So they, so they begin with interest rate hikes. And alongside these interest rate hikes actually were less noted and probably important part of the picture was that the U.S. fiscal authorities also embarked on on generating a surplus in uh, Q1, Q2 of 2022, both of which are net detractors from the private sector. And in in Q3, Q4, the Fed also embarked on QT, right? And the combination of these things is an extremely tough environment for assets of all kinds, right? Because you have to recognize that what assets need is they need accommodative monetary and fiscal support to support their prices over long periods of time. And so what you had is you had essentially the that allowed, you know, stocks, bond, credit, more traditional investments to breathe, just being sucked out of the economy. And this came in, you know, an inflationary period, which is a relatively anomalous kind of occurrence. And the combination of these things was really like the worst environment that you could have for like a 60-40 portfolio. And so, you know, the question for us today is whether we're going to, you know, remain in that set environment or we're going to continue, sorry, whether we're going to remain in that set environment or whether we're, you know, going to transition into something a little bit different. Michael, I'll, I'll pause here for a second just so that, you know, we can continue the discussion a little bit. Yeah, you know, and, and, and I'm glad you focused on that that word anomalous for a moment. Because again, if you're going to do any kind of macro and do any kind of data work, there's always going to be outliers in any data set, right? Which can have outsized impacts over you know a short time frame, but over a long time frame, hopefully not. I, I would argue that, and others have argued the same, that it's we've had sort of two anomalies, right? One is COVID and everything that happened post, but also you can argue that the last decade has been an anomaly in the sense that 
we never really needed quantitative easing three. The Fed kept rates at zero despite a growing economy. There were a lot of things about the last 10 years which were unusual relative to the prior several decades. And even when you look at the distribution of returns of U.S. stocks, if you take out COVID, you almost had a normal distribution in terms of left tail and right tail on S&P returns, uh, whereas small caps didn't have that dynamic, nor did emerging markets. So we really have been in a very bizarre quantitative world, I'd argue now for a while. Right. And I, I think that that just speaks to the challenges of, of, of managing, right? So like what, what, what we have to think about is we have to assess for durability of signal. And I think that it's important to recognize, right? Like that, unfortunately, we would like to, we would like our returns to be based on full sample, but, but we have to actually deal with the small sample and pot pot dependency and issues like that. And, and so I think that, you know, when we're looking ahead, now we have to figure out whether we're going to remain in this environment that we've been in, right? So what we think is we've, we've, the, the term that we've used to describe this is stagflationary nominal growth with tightening liquidity. That kind of environment, given the setup we have, is kind of death for the 60-40 portfolio. Because you have a situation where, you know, costs are rising, faster than output is rising. And that combination of things is really bad for both treasuries and stocks alongside a rising cost of capital, right? And that mix is not something that necessarily can sustain itself for a really long period of time. And we can talk about that as well. So what I think really matters now is whether we're going to transition into something that looks more like a stagflation or a recession. And usually recessions accompany deflation. And, you know, maybe we can kind of get into that. Yeah, no, no, for sure. And by the way, I'm glad you mentioned that point about the path dependency and the small sample. I mean, you know, when you're marked to market daily with a mutual fund or marked to market second by second with ETF, macro and long-term views don't mean a damn thing. Longer-term <laughs> data doesn't mean a damn thing, right? Because people just fall for the small sample, the noise, and independent of how thoughtful your back test or research might be, people fall for the small sample, right? And that's why I always go back to marrying the macro with the sequence of returns when the sequence of returns is what determines investor behavior is really, really challenging, right? Because at the end of the day, you can have a macro view on a particular asset class, but unless you can hold through the sequence, it doesn't really matter too much. Right. And and I, I think that just goes back to, you know, timing being really like the, the, the essence of whether, you know, a strategy is going to be successful or not. And sometimes uh, and sometimes, you know, a strategy that's that's worked really well for a really long period of time can go through these periods. But, you know, I think that what um, you're alluding to is that allocators in general um, tend to be pro-cyclical when honestly they need to be counter-cyclical. And so, you know, probably the, 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 the period when people allocate to funds is when, you know, they're absolutely roofing. They just had a 30% year and, you know, you'll have massive inflows. And that's probably the worst time to allocate to a fund or a fund manager or a given strategy because that usually has been just a point where, okay, you're, going, you're probably going to have reversal in the strategy for whatever reason <laughs> and, and vice versa, right? Maybe just to kind of get into the outlook a little bit. Where we think we are right now is that we are beginning. So in 2022, we, 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 saw, we saw the first stages of a profit contraction, right? And um, there are two different dimensions to think about when it comes to a profit contraction. So there's the first, which is, you know, profits is um, 
you know, if we hold margins constant, it's just a function of top line, which is just which just means that as the economic pie kind of shrinks, pressure on profits increases. The second way to think about profitability, and profit we'll get to why profitability is kind of central right now, is that profits are basically um they're they're a zero-sum game in that, you know, for corporations to make profits, somebody has to dissave, right? So households have to dissave, the government has to dissave, the foreign sector has to dissave, or or companies themselves have to reinvest a lot of money into themselves. So what we had in, say, you know, Q1, Q2 was actually that the, you know, the government was actually a net drag on profits. Um, Households were stimulative to profits, but investment had begun to decrease as tightening began to take effect. And Q3, we saw some amelioration. We're going to find out about Q4. The initial data seems to suggest that it wasn't as good. And, you know, consensus generally expects about flat earnings. Our expectation for NIPA profit data um, is that, you know, we'll, we should be in and around a year of year contraction starting in Q4 of 2022. And so what we're looking at now is that how is that profitability and that profit contraction going to impact the broader economy? And I think it's really important to understand that what happens as we progress through the cycle is that usually you have some form of tightening, right? So, you know, what happens is the that financial economy that we discussed at the outset begins to contract for, you know, a variety, any one of many reasons. As a result, you tend to have lower reinvestment into the economy, which usually is a net drag on profits. You tend to have a weaker outlook, which means you have weaker spending, higher savings. And that tends to start the initial drag on profits. And as profitability decline, right? So if you think about the purpose of profitability, it's to bring your real cost of capital down, right? Bringing your real cost of capital down is a really hard thing to do when you have the kind of inflationary pressures that you have today, right? Along with you know, rates rising the way they are. So as a result, you have lower reinvestment, which means that your future output is likely to be net-net probably a little bit lower. As this future output begins to recede, you'll you'll have less and less of an impulse to grow your labor, right? And so the phase of the cycle that we're, we're getting to is the point where we're actually seeing through our attribution that profits are declining and they are declining at a pace that is actually faster than nominal gdp is declining which means that profits are in contraction though you know nominal gdp is still positive which means that wages are still positive and what typically happens at this junction is once profits slip into contraction businesses do a few things right they they try to re- decrease the number of hours worked they've already done that they try to decrease wages, but it's really hard, right? Once you get the labor market in the state that it's in, unless you have some slack in the labor market, it's hard to, in aggregate, decrease wages. And then finally, as a last resort, you start firing people, right? And that's the point that we're sort of heading towards now. So for an individual business, that might make some sense, right? You know, to lay off workers. Um, but when that happens in the aggregate economy, it's a complicated thing or it's just a pretty bad thing because when you when you remove workers from the aggregate economy you take off a dual you take off a dual component of spending and investment both at the same time and what that does is it basically just removes economic activity a line item of economic activity both on the income and spending side which is a self-reinforcing thing and while for an individual business it might make sense when 
companies in aggregate try to claw back profits, that is, they try to get back some of the GDP pie that they don't have and fire people, you you end up in the self-reinforcing kind of negative spiral. And that's usually, you know, how you end up at a recession. So what we're trying to navigate now is how serious is this profit def- decline going to be? And is it going to be serious enough to kind of cause a spike in a spike in unemployment? And that's kind of the, the the recessionary condition that most people are expecting. But we have to, you know, we have to wait and watch. I think uh, at the outset, we'll say that we're not really uh, five to ten year guys. Um, you know, at Prometheus, we stay much, much closer to the data. So, you know, we're talking about next month, six months, maybe 12 months. And so maybe uh, what I'll do is I'll, I'll kind of break down the, the parts of CPI because I think that's 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 fairly helpful, right? So I think that, you know, it's it's important to recognize that there are conflicting pressures on CPI in today's day and age, right? So we have essentially four big components to CPI, right? Which can be separated into two big categories. You can have services and you can have goods, right? And within services, housing is counted as a service and then you can have services X housing. And within goods, you can have durable and non-durable goods. Now, so housing, right? Um, this is just a matter of computation. Housing roughly reflects housing prices. The methodology that um, the the BLS uses, you know, causes a lag. As a result, you probably have a little bit more housing inflation ahead of you. So, you know, as housing prices decline in the past, it'll they'll slowly make their way into the index. And that'll keep, you know, CPI data with a modest undercurrent. So just housing itself, by the way, will roughly keep you at about two, two and a half percent. Okay. Which means which is, you know, still high relative to history. Um, and that's just a computational effect. Now, if we skip, you know, jump over to the good side, both durable and non-durable goods are seeing infl- uh, you know deflationary pressures so disinflationary pressures and what you have to think about when you when you're looking at this non-durable goods sector is really you know what 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 we're talking about when it comes to the cyclical slowing and tightening right the the impact is most felt in these areas because they are you know form they are the most levered parts of the economy both in terms of their financing of the business and also in terms of the consumption so you know Durable goods include things like furnishing. They include things like um, automobiles and things like that, and things that are typically more big-ticket items that tend to have more leverage associated with all the activity. And so, you know, as you have a tightening happen, these durable goods, which is reflected in the broader economy also, tend to be more sensitive to slowdowns and accelerations and tend to move ahead, and they tend to cause knock-on effects to the incomes and spending of other parts of the economy. And so the net pressure coming into the goods economy. And then you have the non-durable component, which is just essentially a function of what is happening to commodity prices and the pass-through of commodity prices into those components. And so the net pressure from the goods economy is a function of the cyclical tightening that we're having and the slowdown. And finally, we have the services X housing component. And that's that's the component that people worry about. Right, and that's the comp- that, that that is the component to be worried about, because the the way that you know if if we go and we track the amount of levered spending you know in personal consumption expenditures, it's it's actually not that high. So when we look through these different components, what we see is that there are basically two different forces at play: one set in the goods economy, which are more volatile and smaller pressing down on inflation. But, you know, we have the services economy, which are stable and financed by income and probably likely to be, you know, kind of trending at a higher rate than, you know, we're used to. So I, I think that the 
the path is, you know, it's not going to correspond with any one of the extremes. We're not going to have, you know, hyperinflation generated by the services economy and when a wage price spiral. At the same time, we're not going to have crazy deflation because of the goods economy. What you're probably likely to have is a balance of these two, which nets out to having something around four to, you know, between four and five percent. That's a very wide band, but given the volatility of goods, as you've seen over the last couple of months, that's roughly consistent with what you know, we expect to see over the next, say, six months in month-on-month CPI trends. And so I think recognizing that we have these mixed forces in play is really important. Now, the second component of, you know, inflation is just, you know, the the money and money, money and credit kind of creation. And what you have to realize is that, like, inflation is largely just a function of spending relative to output, right? Spending can come from money, which is you know created by the government, and you can talk about, and then you you can have credit, which is created by the the banking and financial system, and so if you do an if you do a rough attribution of those factors, right, you can essentially say that okay, if we look at the net government impulse and the impulse and what that's causing commercial banks to do, you don't actually have a monetary impulse. So if you think about it, you can either have spending financed by new money, or you can have spending financed by existing money. Right, so the, you can think of one as you know credit creation. You can think of the other one as the velocity of existing money. And so, what we know is that we're unlikely to have a lot of liquidity and money created by the government and intermediated and created created by banks, given cyclical conditions. So, what you're really betting on when it comes to inflation is you're, you're betting on you know an increasing acceleration of the velocity of existing money. And it's pretty hard to say that that number is going to keep rising given cyclical conditions. So taking all of these perspectives together, we're probably in a situation where, you know, we're going to be in a cooling. So, you know, a decently high inflation period, definitely way lower than anything we've seen in 2022. It's not going to be a wage price spiral, um, but it's also just not going to be as low as we're used to. We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So... How do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. Let's get a little um, granular for a moment here. As far as the profit contraction, are there certain sectors or industries where it looks like it's going to be a faster dynamic? Are there some sectors, industries that will be more isolated? I think that based on our tracking, I think the, the biggest issues that we're seeing are mostly in the auto sector. So I think what they, you know, I think the autos sector in a way is kind of like the most, has been the most impacted in this cycle in that they have tried to rebuild inventories massively into um, an environment where initially leverage and money were just ample. And they continue to try to build inventories into an, into a, you know, an environment where activity is decreasing extremely fast. So, you know, if you go and look at, say, you know, new versus used car pricing, you can see rapid declines in, you know, used car pricing. And 
what you still see, though, is you actually still still see volumes moving in use cost. On the flip side, you actually see a broad blaze decline in the auto sector and auto sector leverage. And so I, I think that the the main issue we're going to see in this cycle is just going to be, you know, manufacturers supplying retailers and wholesalers of automobiles with automobiles. But I don't think that they're going to be able to actually move those inventories consistent with what that you know with with what they've historically expected. And so I think that in terms of sectors that are particularly exposed to this cycle, I think that it's the auto sector. More broadly, I, I think that you also have, you know, when it comes to equity space rather than kind of like rural economy space, I think that what is going to obviously be hit is the longest duration assets, right? And so we've already seen a lot of that happen, right? So, you know, you have, you've had a lot of equities that essentially just need incremental funding to, you know, keep their equity valuations up. And as, you know, monetary and fiscal authorities pull back, on that support, I think that those equity prices are probably the most, you know, exposed to a slowdown. So, you know, things like consumer discretionary, things like tech, I think that, the, you know, that set of things is probably the most exposed to a weakness here. And obviously that contrasts with something like energy, right? Where you've actually had energy as an extremely strong offset to, you know, price action and all these other sectors because they've actually been a net beneficiary of this current environment. Speaking of energy, I keep referencing this idea that historically, when you see energy outperforming tech, historically, when you see value outperforming growth, that's also when you tend to see international, in particular, emerging markets uh, outperforming U.S. I'm I'm curious if you've done any work that would suggest that, sure, you're going to have profit contraction here in the States. Obviously, everything correlates to one extremes, but what does it look like globally outside of the U.S., I think the the home bias that has been so beneficial to investors, it's my suspicion that's probably not going to be as beneficial as it used to be. I, I'll probably stay in my lane on this one, Michael. We're we're, we're U.S. centric shop, so um, I can't really speak very on a, in a very educated fashion on EM. Fair enough. No, it's just something that, that I myself am trying to focus more effort on. Okay, so you've got a, a portfolio on your Substack, right? That you sure. put out. In terms of uh, allocations and marrying with your macro view, talk us through that current portfolio allocation and why are certain weightings the way they are? Sure. So um, I think again, let's uh, let's just kind of talk through how how we how we do this so that you know there's some context in in terms of what the actual positions are. So we we go through three stages in terms of uh, our portfolio construction. So the first stage is we we do what you know, fundamental macro forecasting, right? And we have uh, we have aggregators that allow us to create now costs, you know, for, you know, GDP, for balance sheets, things like that. So we have a good picture of what economic activity is. And then for three variables, growth, inflation, and liquidity, right? We try to estimate what the path is likely to be over the next six to 12-ish months. And based on those forecasts, we we, we, we decide what, our likely asset allocation strategy is going to be right. Like so, you know, in a in a rising growth, falling inflation environment, we would like equities. In a rising growth, rising inflation environment, we'd like commodities. In a rising growth, sorry, in a falling growth, uh, rising inflation environment, we'd like tips. We'd like gold. In you know a deflationary environment, which is falling growth, falling inflation, we'd like um, we'd like something like bonds. Um, and you know, then you know, if you have a broad base liquidity tightening, like um, we had in. Uh, 
in 2022, we probably like relative value more than we do like any kind of absolute beta, right? So we'd like curve flatteners, we'd like um, things like uh, the inverse evaluation, you know, so maybe value perhaps, and and so on and so forth. So based on, you know, our netting out of where we think that fundamental conditions are heading, we kind of set up, okay, like these are the things that we could prospectively be looking at. Then, you know, once we go through that process, we we do what we call our, our market regime confirmation. And what the market regime confirmation, Michael, is, is it's really just trying to, it's trying to minimize for that 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 error you can have from, from signal. So what, what I think we're trying to understand is that, okay, we know as fundamental forecasters and macro, we can be extremely wrong about things. Right. And so we want to we don't want to be overly reliant on the fact that, oh, we have this view of how the economy is going to pan out and things just don't seem to be working in that direction. So what we need is we need markets to marginally confirm the initial stages of a move consistent with what we're expecting for fundamentals. So, you know, are markets beginning to price, say, you know, rising inflation and we expect, you know, rising inflation. Okay, these two form checks. Now, on top of this, right, so what we do, how we get to that is essentially we look at market pricing to a certain, okay, our market's pricing, rising inflation, falling inflation, growth, liquidity. So, you know, our break-evens rising, our curves rising, um, you know, our our commodities outperforming, equities, all of these things would be indications that, okay, inflation is being priced into markets. And we do that for every environment to be able to understand whether markets are confirming or denying, you know, the, our fundamental expectations. And then finally, we have a set of, you know, timing overlays, which really, I think, again, going back to what we talked about at the top of the discussion is really just what we're trying to do is we're trying to create something durable in the sense that we want to be we want to be neutral to what any particular time series does. So essentially, the two big forces right, that directionally occur in markets are, well, there are only two. There's, there's momentum, which is trend, and there's counter trend, which is reversal. right? And you know, in terms of magnitude, you can have vol up or vol down. And what, what, what we try to do is we try to overlay a set of timing tools that make us essentially... Um, unbiased to any one of those environments. And we put all of those things together and they spit out positions and we net out across all of these signals what we have what we expect for a particular asset class. In in today's environment, right, I think that the the biggest force that we're seeing in cost asset pricing is a mild bout of disinflationary pricing. Right. So what we see in our lenses is that after just constantly pricing inflationary pressures last year, we've had a reversal as, you know, inflation prints come in a little bit lower and you have a bunch of passive flows also, you know, probably modestly supportive of this. So currently, the portfolio is actually set up to bet on this mild mild bit of disinflation by betting on both stocks and bonds together as a portfolio. Now, given the fundamental outlook, you would probably say, hey, like it makes why would you bet on equities if you think that we're probably going to go into a recession? And I think that it's really important to understand that a combined bet with stocks and bonds together is very different from having stocks as an individual asset. And the way to probably think through that is that stocks and bonds together have the same inflation bias, right? They like lower inflation or lower priced inflation relative to expectations, and they have differing growth biases. So what you end up with, you end up with a bet which is actually neutral to growth and bets on disinflation. And largely, that's what we've seen over the last few weeks and months. Over you know, 
taking this. So our portfolio turns over weekly, right? And we can change, and we're pretty nimble about this. So what we're seeing likely to evolve is that we expect that that weakening growth impulse to become larger and larger. And over time, what we'll probably end up having is a situation where equity, uh, equity positions completely drop off. And we'll act, we have a small portion of gold in the portfolio as well. And we expect both gold and gold and um, bonds to actually become a larger and larger portion of the portfolio as we move into these recessionary kind of characteristics. But I think that it's important to recognize that there's, the, there's this large probability of being wrong, even the best investors, you know, probably wrong about 45% of the time, 40% of the time. And so I think that, you know, having a, a, a diverse set of signals netting out to give you a portfolio is what makes sense. And, you know, so far that 60-40-ish kind of bet this year has been a good one. When we talk about bonds, we have to obviously distinguish by credit quality. Um, Right. Last year was unusual in that it was largely uh, duration driven, a shift in the entire bond market, not a credit spread widening type of environment. Spreads actually stayed remarkably tight all throughout last year, despite all the devastation that happened to the fixed income landscape. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on the likelihood of credit quality becoming a real question mark for investors. If I think if you're going to argue that you got profit contraction, you have recessionary pressures, at some point default risk has to kick back in. Right. And, you know, I think it uh, it boils down to... So... If you if you have profit contraction and you have firing and you have slowing top line, absolutely credit 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 risk is going to become a thing. Right? That that is that you know. So contingent upon all of the things that I've been outlining actually happening, yeah, you'll absolutely have credit risk become a thing. Now the question is, is it going to be a thing like two thousand eight? Balance of probability, probably not, just because you don't have um, kind of the same systemic kind of issues where you know in the mortgage industry, et cetera, et cetera, that you do. But yeah, I. I think that the baseline expectation is definitely, you know, if you expect equities to get worse, you expect credit spreads to widen. That's pretty much, you know, yeah, that, you know, you you, you know the math on this. I think that that's, yeah, definitely. And and, and I'm going to assume also that that's partially, partially why gold probably keeps on getting a bid. I mean, I keep making this point that gold really doesn't correlate to very much except high volatility pulses. It's non-correlated, so... Some of that momentum, I'd argue, that we've seen the last you know, several months is because allocators maybe believe that this is going to be more of a difficult and prolonged, um, frustrating environment for beta. So you want more diversifiers so at the margin go into gold. Um, I see in the portfolio, though, and correct if I'm wrong, that you've got a heavy allocation towards uh, munis. Uh, I think MBB is the ETF on that. Um, yeah, so so talk through that. I, I don't really talk about munis too much on these spaces, but it is um, an interesting place to to focus on. Well, I, I don't I don't think we have uh, munis uh, explicitly. Let me um, check this. Yeah, so it's the uh, it's the MBS ETF. Um, so we we have iShares MBS. That's MBB. So oh, sorry, think, my fault. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, MBS for us is you know a, a slightly different way to kind of capture the same bet. In terms of the fixed income, the fixed income exposure, uh, with just you know probably a little bit more like convexity to it, you know. So I don't think we actually have munis in the portfolio. We, we haven't run that, but it's basically just part of our broad-based bet across the curve and across duration, and we have, we expect that to play out roughly consistent 
across the entire curve. And, you know, as far as so far as you're not getting into, you know, the place where credit risk starts becoming an issue. So we actually differentiate between things that have credit risk and things that have lower credit risk. And, you know, given MBB, MBB has a, you know, extremely low dur- duration, extremely low vol. Um, we don't think it's, you know, that much of a meaningfully different bet as the treasury's bet. Yeah, fair enough. And I see also you've got some interesting allocations in the ag space, uh, soybeans in particular, which have really gotten uh, quite a bit of momentum. I- I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that. So I, I have a good relationship with the guys at Tucrim. The ag space is unique from a correlation perspective. How do you think about investing in some of these ag plays? I think I think this is like the the most underrepresented part of you know investor portfolios. Commodities in general and 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 ags, if you know you have a decent mechanism to you know I I don't want to get too far into oh time them correctly, but if you have a decent mechanism to trade them in a way that you know you're not losing too much money because of the amount of vol they, they generate they're actually fantastic exposures so you know if you if you think about most traditional portfolios they're just not adequately balanced to inflationary periods right and so what you want is you actually want exposures that do really well when you have these pulses of inflation and so you know things like ags things like energy you know energy commodities, that is, all of these assets actually did really well last year, right? And they would have gone a really long way in ameliorating, you know, any portfolio losses you had in more traditional assets. So I think in commodities in general, recognizing the fact that when you have true diversity, right, Michael, you actually want more vol in that diversity. Because mathematically, what it'll end up doing is it'll be a a drag on your total portfolio volatility while maintaining your returns and maybe even boosting them. And so I think that the 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 relative vol you actually get from ags and commodities exposures, given they're so uncorrelated to, you know, the exposures that you have in traditional stocks and bonds, you know, if you look across equity sectors, the correlations are way, way higher than anything you have in the commodity space. And as somebody looking for diversity, right, and a bit of active management as well, I think they're fantastic add to the portfolio. Yeah, I mean, the challenge, of course, there is you've got to be aware of the, the futures rollover, right, that happens. But sure. if you're going to get exposure to it, you know, there are a number of ETFs that um, that help with that. And I'm I'm with you on that that point. I go back to, you know, it, it, I think we're in a correlation reset, right? I mean, what happened last year, you can argue, reset the bond market and you still have yet to kind of reset the stock market fully, certainly on the global uh, landscape, against other asset classes, which did nothing for a while, right? So laggards become leaders, leaders becomes laggards at some point. I think the ag space is unique in a lot of ways. But having said that, you know, the geopolitical risk becomes interesting. I I wonder how you think about macro and geopolitics in the sense that there could be positive geopolitical news that comes out that could alter a lot of arguments and uh, around commodities. You know, if somehow Russia decides to stop the war with Ukraine, maybe that causes a complete further collapse in fertilizer, which then has all kinds of ripple effects on on the ag space um how do you how do you marry sort of granted it's hard to do right because it's unknowable but how do you think about geopolitical changes when it comes to forming a macro view yeah so i i think that you know what we do we're not we're not we're not geopolitical experts right like we don't spend time worrying about we really actually you know we don't bake in exactly what the fed is saying or anything like that either you know what what we realize is that two things um Meaningful events are priced into market discounting, 
And very meaningful events usually make their way into economic data. So, you know, the way we look at economic data is that we try to have a burden of evidence approach where we're constantly, you know, near daily updating what we think about the current state of the economy and the current state of markets and what they're pricing. And so what ends up happening, right, is that if you have anything meaningfully change in the economic outlook as a result of policy, it ends up making its way either into market pricing or into, you know, actual economic data. And the combination of those things actually allows us to kind of, you know, skirt around actually having to, you know, prognosticate about what policymakers are doing. You know, it, it's it's just not something that it, we find can really be helpful. And that's like ninety. Ed- that's like ninety nine percent of Twitter. <laughs> I give you credit yeah. for not being like that because a lot of I gotta go back to people who say this stuff and you, what do you do with that information? Nothing. <laughs> uh, absolutely nothing. It's uh, the the thing is, you know, it's also just impossible to systematize, right? Like, you know, you know, you have an idea of what some policymaker in some country is going to do. There's no way to systematize that, and without your ability to systematize that, I think it's important to realize that this isn't like some, you know esoteric quant speak discussion, right? You, systematization is a very simple thing, really. You are trying to say, these are my assumptions about the world. How have they panned out in history? Um, and does that make any sense, right? And when it comes to a lot of these geopolitical things, they're so case-specific and there's so much, you know, um, event risk. There's no way to actually systematize, oh, yeah, this is what I thought that, you know, X, Y, and Z politician was going to do and you know can we trust that over 100 years of data it's just unlikely that you actually have the edge that you think that you have and so you know it's not something we spend a lot of time on and by staying nimble right and having all these timing filters and having these regime filters and things like that you can control risk way better than you know reading a headline and worrying about what its impact is going to be because usually you'll actually see any meaningful impacts that actually happen in markets and pricing so you know if somebody changes nat gas regulation and nat gas, you know, is down a bunch and, you know, you get a margin call, you, you, you kind of know where you're at. Yeah, no, 100% on that. I think it's probably a good place to end this space. Everybody, please make sure you follow uh, Han Manan here on Twitter. Check out his research on Prometheus Macro. They've got a great sub stack. Any final thoughts here, uh, Han, for the audience, anything that you think people should be paying attention to or maybe refocusing on I, I keep going back to i think there's so much noise and bullshit on twitter that uh, we have to kind of get back to what fundamentally works and what doesn't how do you filter right that's always the key thing um what will be your biggest piece of advice for everybody here i think uh you know we're kind of navigating what is likely to be a contraction but i think there's a, a lot of what i'm seeing you know just to speak about twitter very briefly i think you're getting a lot of fuddy type you know the world is going to end. This is going to be the next. This this is going to be next two thousand eight. You know, a recession is just. You know, it's going to be horrible. It's going to be this and that. I think what we have to spend our time doing is finding people that actually have balanced and measured opinions. Right? Like we think the, you know, U.S. GDP is in contraction. We, you know, you can check our Twitter out and you'll see that our later, latest updates actually show that we think that we are in a negative GDP year over year. So this could potentially actually even be you know starting point of a recession. But what you have to recognize at this kind of junction is that you have to have a lot of humility in these things, right? That forecasting is really hard and even the best forecasters get things wrong a lot. You have to, you know, in navigating a potential contraction where you're going to have a lot of growth volatility and markets are going to react, you have to be careful and measured because there's a high probability that you're wrong 
And if you're wrong and you make outsized bets based off some kind of, you know, really fuddy description of the world, you're probably going to put your portfolio at peril. So I think that navigating a recession requires a level of cool-headedness when it comes to deploying risk. And I think that's probably the most important thing in, 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 in this time over the next six months. The end of the world is the bull case, as I said, <laughs> October 2nd. And I really, I, I always go back to that point. There were people that were putting memes out showing dinosaurs with an asteroid. And the dinosaur said, well, I guess that's bullshit stocks. It's like, it actually is. It's, it's not a joke. It's actually an interesting kind of contrarian sentiment indicator. Anyway, everybody here, please make sure, again, you follow uh, good old Prometheus uh, here on Twitter. I will have this as an edited podcast. I've been doing a number of other spaces trying to power through. I appreciate all the support from those that are here recognizing uh, those that are in the arena like uh, myself, like Ahan. And thank you, everybody, for joining. Thank you. Appreciate it, really, Ahan. Hey, thanks, Michael. Pleasure to meet you. Thank you, everybody. Cheers. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.